Today we'll be discussing life on TV and movie sets, and we'll be discussing unconscious bias in healthcare. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing what life is really like on the sets of TV shows and movies, and we'll be discussing unconscious bias in healthcare. But first, Ali, what's going on? What's going on? You know, we started a, a show on uh, Netflix last night called The Chair. Hmm. First of all, I love Sandra O. Oh, so yeah. that was she's uh, from my hometown, your hometown, Ontario. Okay. Yes, all right. people, well, I know people who went to high school with her. Okay, <laughs> but you're practically a celebrity yourself. You're practically an actor. So you know, I'm just going to watch it because I, I'll watch anything Sandra O. Oh does. I love how she mm -hmm. dives deep into the characters. Uh, but but. This has a whole new element just because I've started teaching. I've started teaching at, you know, a revered institution in Canada, Queen's University in Kingston. And this is what this show is about. She's the chair of her department at this, you know, Pembroke, which looks like a, you know, a Princeton University yeah, type Ivy of place. League, yeah. Ivy League University. And it's very, very interesting. I don't think I'm I'm speaking out of school here uh, or or not, not speaking out of school. I don't think I'm ruining anything for people. But there is this idea of like call you know university degrees being less something that people want to pay whatever it would be you know 80,000 a year for especially when it's a you know one of these arts degrees and you're not sure what your future mm -hmm, holds mm -hmm. and how will you pay it back as as money and finances become more precarious you have to really consider these things. so it's a school where enrollment is down oh right in into a crisis place and so they are talking about well who are the who are the highest paid teachers in our department what are their numbers like and they have to do some like difficult decisions this is all just in the first episode and i just i was thinking like i want to know if this is a reality in actual college campuses yeah across it's, it's, uh, north it's america in particular yeah, yeah. Uh, is that a thing are people like look this, this person makes two hundred fifty thousand dollars. they have five people showing up to their course they haven't changed their class in 25 years Mm -hmm. You know, and I, you know, also I, you know, when I was doing my masters, I always remarked that the teachers I disliked the most were the ones who were, you know, incredibly academic, 30 years in school. Usually experience is a good thing, but when you haven't done anything practical in 30 years and it's all scholarly work, academic work, that those teachers were less interesting than the ones who would drive in from a city that evening to teach a course and they had just worked at their jobs. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. We think of universities as, especially when we're students, as the function is for teaching, but really it's for generating knowledge, right? That's actually what universities want to do. There are some smaller universities and colleges where teaching is actually their main focus, but most of these larger universities, it's to generate knowledge. And the teaching is almost secondary. You kind of have to do it, but mm -hmm. it's not really what, what they want. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Like, because in a situation like this, I haven't watched the show yet, but it's like, it wouldn't just be, are their courses have high enrollment and are, are their teaching evaluations good? It's like, are they bringing in grant dollars from their research mm. to the university. And those people are highly regarded. Uh, whereas if you don't have any grants, then you might get the boot. 
Sure. You know, uh, that so, might come so up I in episode to, two. Yeah, exactly. Huh? Well, exactly. The sexy Grant episode is coming yeah. up, right? But anyway, I, I would I would recommend it. I think it's got it's got legs. I was sad that I was just too tired. We we started it late, and I would have I you know it's pretty bingeable, I'm sure. But I yeah I think we're gonna do one or two episodes a night. But do recommend so far. We just well I just started Why the Last Man, which is on FX, and I don't know if you've heard about this show. I have not. It's been in the, it's been trying they've been trying to make this show for I don't know ten years. It's based on a graphic novel by Brian K. Vaughn. Brian K. Vaughn, pretty famous comic book writer. He wrote on Lost and a couple of other TV shows, and he has a lot of these series that are quite well regarded. And the premise of this show, we kind of this it's the main character's name is Yorick the why and so he's why the last man because what happens is this and this doesn't really ruin very much for you but he ends up being the last male on earth well him and his monkey are the last two males on earth uh, because of this event that happens in the first episode of the show and it's interesting that also doesn't ruin anything for me because i probably will never watch this show based on this description but so it's. I think you should Give me more so monkey listen. news. Let me tell listen. me. Let me hear more about the monkey. The Maybe monkey is it. unfortunately CGI for most of it. It Come looks on. like from watch from the first episode, but it looks it's pretty convincing CGI monkey. It's the same monkey that uh, type of monkey that was in Friends. You know the. Uh, Ross's pet monkey, uh, sure. but it's a bit of CGI, which, which sounds like, you know, the amount that Ross, um, David Schwimmer hated that monkey. I think, <laughs> I think, you know, that's all they ever talk about is how much he hated the monkey. Probably the CGI is just easier for everybody. But listen, you should watch it for a couple of reasons. First of all, I do understand people are kind of done with post-apocalyptic stuff like The Walking Dead, etc. And that's kind of what it is. It's also implied it's a virus that is responsible. So maybe people don't want to hear about this virus. <laughs> but what's good about this show is there's one guy and the rest of the cast is all women. So this is a perfect opportunity for women. Like Diane Lane, who's a great actress, right? Oh, she's amazing. she's the she's the lead. Like she's the first name uh, uh when you start watching the show and his name is third. Okay. The show is called Why the Last Man. And I and I appreciate what the show does cuz in the comic it's just Yorick's point of view and then through flashbacks and he meets up with different people throughout the course of his journey. And then he ends up, you know, then you get their backstories, but this is different. He starts off the episode of the first episode, and then it looks at all the women and what happens. And you see their experience of what happens, you know, with, with this event that causes all the men to, to kind of die, which is, which is good. Like they should be the main characters in it as opposed to Yorick. And so I'm glad that they decide to do that for the show. Mm. The director's female for the, for the first episode. So I love that we're celebrating common sense now, huh? That's, that's what should have been done. And we're like, it was good. I'm glad they did it. Well, again, again, it's, it's not that faithful to the source material in terms of that respect, but I think they, they, they modified it well. So I don't know. I think, I think people should give it a chance, especially if you like Diane Lane, if you like the kind of post-apocalyptic thing, the, the, comic is great it's 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 amazing i think most people thought it was one of the best comics of uh i think it was in the 2000s it was released so so i i, I give it a try if you think you'd like it again my i told my wife uh you know oh uh, do you want to watch the show i told her the premise she's like is it a comedy or a drama and i'm like yeah it's true because it sounds like the last man on earth which was will forte's show where yeah. he was the last man on earth which yeah. was a hilarious show if people haven't seen it i suggest, i think that might be the next uh one that kind of pops up on Netflix and everybody binges it because it's it's a hilarious show. But mm-hmm. I'm like, no, it's a drama. She's like, yeah, I'll pass. 
Well, I actually enjoyed the sales sales pitch by the end. At the beginning, okay. I thought it might be a bit too nerdy. A dude and his monkey derived <laughs> from comic book world. I was like, I don't. Uh, this but anyway, yeah, if you guys are interested, check it out. Like I said, the first episode I thought was good, and I tweeted it. And I tweeted out like I thought it was amazing because I did. Mm. And it was liked by Nina Jacobson, who is an Uber producer in Hollywood, if people who don't know. So I guess I'm like friends with her now, right? That's not how that works, but uh, good for you. It's good to be retweeted. Is that your first retweet ever? <laughs> no, it was a like though, not a retweet. Oh. But you know who did retweet me the other day? Rafi, like the, the children's singer Rafi. Oh, great. Yeah. So now- him and I are friends though, right? With a retweet versus a like, right? Right. Okay, so Ali, I want to talk to you a bit about life on set. Now you're currently filming a sitcom, which I think is still a bit under wraps, so we won't reveal the name or something. It is a bit under wraps. Well, I'll, uh, yeah, I'm 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 fifth on the call sheet. To what that means is, you know, yeah, there's there's four leads, and I'm the fifth person. I'm a supporting cast, and uh, it's a thrill. It's really really good and. Uh, this is the mo this is my most sort of I've had characters where I've been brought in to do a role and then they like the character and uh, presumably enjoyed working with me so then they write me into more episodes but this is the first time where my character is is uh, well established in a season of a sitcom and it's pretty great this is what you this is what you hope for yeah and filmed in Toronto I guess. In and yeah. around Toronto, Hamilton, Ontario, Scarborough, Ontario. Okay. That's great. Around here. Yeah. No, it's good. And we'll talk more about it as soon as I can. Well, right. And so I kind of want to ask you about not this sitcom in particular, but more this idea of, of being on set, because it's a bit of a foreign concept to us who don't, who aren't in the Hollywood world, just like, you know, my work in the hospital is probably foreign to you, but mm -hmm. I've never, have I ever been on a set? I don't think so. I think I've... Uh, Maybe been in like an extra in a crowd scene if I was walking around someplace in Toronto or something. But, uh, and certainly a lot of filming when I lived in Toronto, there was lots of filming. I mean, Why the Last Man, which we just talked about in the intro, I watched yeah. it. I'm like, oh, dude, that's Mercer Street. Like, I can tell, <laughs> you know, that's Hart House. Like, I can tell the areas yeah. in Toronto where it was filmed. So I watched like 10 minutes of it. I'm like, oh, this is filmed in Toronto. So, I saw a lot of, of filming going on in Toronto. You, you know, you can't really go by a day living in downtown Toronto without seeing a film crew somewhere doing some stuff or trailers usually is what you see. But let, let's just ask a couple of questions. So what was the first set you were on? Maybe you could take us back to like the first set and, and what, what was Very, very underwhelming set I was on. It was, um, dude, I don't even know if it was a short film or a full length feature. I believe it was full length. It was uh, non-union. I wasn't a member of the union yet. And I played a guy in a pizza shop. I, I ran so, a pizza well, store. Just back, well, one sec. So non-union means you're, okay, I understand oh, you're yeah. not part of a union, yeah, yeah, of course. but of course. You, you don't get, you get paid less. They treat you like yeah. crap. Well, potentially, I mean, that's the worry when you're non-union that you could do a 12-hour shift without a break or you mm. could have, sorry, we were going to pay you for this much. This was the agreement. I know you work three more hours, but this is all we have. You're at the um, whims and discretion of the production company when you work non-union. And that's always the fear. But, you know, I didn't 
I didn't have a, you have to do a certain number of credits. You have to take a class. You have to do a bunch of things, pay for a permit. Back in those days, I don't even know if I had enough money to pay for this, 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 this permit or the class. So I wasn't a union member yet. The idea was always to become a union member, but you, so you need a, to work on a few productions first. And then just since we're on this topic, you know, sometimes you hear a famous Hollywood actor, like I'm doing an indie film and I'm being paid scale. Like, what does that mean when you, be, I, yeah, I don't mean, know, I'm, a, we're totally off topic here, but. Yes. No, I mean, that's a huge sacrifice for some of these guys, I'm sure. When you, because you fight and you claw away to get to that place where you are paid, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, you know, the, the biggest names in Hollywood would be millions per, per movie. Because they know, like, if I am part mm -hmm. of this movie. Let's say, you know, Bruce Willis in an action movie and it's billed as his last action movie. Bruce Willis and his agent can say, well, look, I can command five million, let's say, for this movie. Mm -hmm. Why? Because mm -hmm. I know you're going to make several hundred million because, right. Right. you know, I'm so what I'm, is scale my mean last then? film. Scale is the very least they can So it's pay. minimum wage for actors. It's the minimum wage for actors. Yeah. And that, that would be different depending on, you know, the different markets that the people work in. But it's not it's not it's not a bad payday but it's uh you don't want scale you want to move above scale okay. ideally right okay. and as soon as you go into overtime you get more than scale your okay. agent will often try to negotiate but if you don't have a name or a presence it's hard to it's hard to get more than scale and some productions quite simply just don't have the money they just mm -hmm. don't have the mm -hmm. budget to mm -hmm. afford more than that and everybody gets paid scale so sorry, getting back to your you were this pizza pizza shop owner. So sorry, oh yeah, so a, it was... was a cold Montreal night, and I had heard read about like you know you get to sit in your trailer and you get to, I I, I got to sit in a a tent that was on the street on a chair. That's what I got to sit on. I went into this pizza shop and I was the pizza shop owner and I had to hand this actor a pizza that he asks for and uh, I did not know this. But the director, I said, I said to the director, you know, sometimes you're able to make suggestions. And I guess I had just been chatting with the director. And I said, to, do you think this is funny if I say this? And he said to me something that, you know, I didn't understand it at the time. He said, you can say whatever you want, but I can only pay you for five lines. So do not go over five lines. I was like, oh, that's strange. So I had to talk to my agent about that later. I was like, what did that mean? They're like, oh, yeah, they were paying you a certain amount. And once you speak more than five times, I think it was five. Once you speak more than five times, you're in a different pay grade. And so I think, you know what, as I think about it, that might have been a union gig. That might have been my first union gig. The problem is it was so forgettable. It's not even a credit on my IMDb page. It's not even, I don't know what happened to that. That just sort of disappeared. It was just... An experience, and that was it. Maybe we'll go to your first, like bigger set. You know what I mean? Like yeah. so that was like like with with like a bigger crew and more people. I want to say more professional, but that's probably a bit mean to those people in Montreal. But uh, but you know how is that? And and I guess I'm thinking like, how do you know how to behave on one of these sets? You know and. The, the thing with me is that I had taken a couple of like small steps. I'd taken a few courses here and there. And I was dreaming about kind of one day being an actor. Mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden, my first, you know, my first real role was, was kind of significant. You go from these auditions for like small roles when you start, you know, one line, two line, basically one page, and you have a couple of lines on that one page. 
But my first role was a film called French Immersion. And mm-hmm. it was Kevin Tierney, the late, wonderful Kevin Tierney, who became a good friend of mine in the years before he passed away. He was looking for a South Asian actor who could play a chef. And so Bill Brownstein, who I always love and give full respect to, is an arts and life uh, columnist for the Gazette in Montreal, said to Kevin, is that what you're looking for? I can do you one better. I can give you a South Asian guy who actually was a chef and you want him to have comedic chops. Even better, he's an actual stand-up comedian. So Kevin was like, okay, we, we, I, I got to see this guy. So he, you know, he auditioned a few of us. And to be fair, there weren't many brown actors, period. Never mind who could play mm-hmm, a chef, but mm-hmm. brown comedic actors, there weren't that many in Montreal in 2010. So he brought me in in, in a group of, I don't know, maybe five people. Mm-hmm. And I, I stood out. We had a nice connection. And uh, and that was it. And now all of a sudden I'm on a movie. I'm, I'm one of the main cast on a movie. And I didn't know things. I didn't know basic things. I I was like looking at a table of food and I was like, am I allowed to eat that? I was looking at these chairs. Am it, I allowed to sit food? here? Is that what, or was it no, like a catering? I, it was not. I was, it was catering. It was catering, but, but you I didn't, didn't know, know. Could you? Right. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I had to tell these ADs. Now ADs are assistants to the director. You have the first AD who works right beside the director. Second AD sort of does maybe in charge of, you know, crew. Third AD would be maybe just working at the trailers, not on set. So you have various levels of these assistants. So I had to keep asking the assistants, like, listen, this is my first film. So I'm going to ask you a dumb question. Am I allowed to eat this? Am I allowed to sit here? Am I, you know, I just didn't want to be trouble to anybody because I was shocked to see how many people work on a film set. It is unbelievable. And every single person's job is critical. Because if you are, let's say, oh, I work, uh, I work on props. Oh, you're the props master. No, I'm not the props master. I'm one of five people who work on props. Oh, so now it doesn't sound like it's that important. No, if you work there and your your responsibility, let's say, was to bring a ski mask because there's a scene, you know, with a robbery in it, and you forget that ski mask. Guess what? Now, 75 people have to wait while you get in the car and go to Walmart or wherever you have to go to now find a ski mask. So everybody's job is critical, no matter where they are, sort of on the totem pole and all that, you know, whether you're laying down wires, setting up lighting, whatever it is, it's unbelievable. And people are very focused on their job and they work long hours. They work very, very hard. And I I just didn't want to be a wrench in the works in any way. I wanted to be prepared and and, and ready. Well, th- this reminds me of that story. Do you remember this one when Christian Bale was filming uh, Terminator Salvation? You're just and- going to walk in my eyeline. He lost so, his mind. He's like, yeah, there's a whole recording of him like losing it on somebody for for doing that, like for walking in their line of sight. So is that something you have to be aware of when you're on the set when they're filming or do you just go somewhere else if you're not in the scene can you watch a scene if there's somebody you want to watch or i think it's a it's a a question of like respect for the actor i mean as you're you're delivering your lines you would like to believe that there aren't people making noise in the background having a conversation right it's supposed to be the assistant director says okay everyone quiet on set and you you should honor that every single person on set. Oh, what about like say, cell phones and stuff like that? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. If your cell phone rings, you are you're a complete amateur loser on set. I mean, that's the first thing everybody's cell phone should be off. Most people shouldn't have their cell phones with them. That would be the right. ideal situation, but they should absolutely be off. Because if you ruin a take, that's that that's bad. That's bad. That's very amateurish. But I think, you know, quiet on set is one thing, but also if Christian Bale, like I felt for him, I felt like he lost it and I was sad to, you would hope it's a bit of a safe space and that stuff doesn't get shared publicly. But anyway, he did, he did uh, lose it a little bit more than was justified, but you also don't know what people are going through. You don't know if he's an executive producer on a film and he's losing money or what sacrifices he's making to be away from his family for how many days or how long shooting's going. Is it going to overtime every day? Now, I understand those things now that you can be really, really drained and under a lot of pressure, depending on what your role is in a film. So yes, somebody walked in the background. So while you're focusing on being very much in the moment opposite this actor and some, you know, dolly grip or some person who, I don't know, some some person who works on a film set sort of just walks in the background, That's that can be a huge distraction. And it, it I think it just showed a huge lack of respect for, for an actor. And maybe he was getting a lot of disrespect already, and that's the moment he snapped. But in general... Yeah, you should probably stop your movement when the scene is happening because already we're playing such make-believe. It's like, can everybody please right, try right. to make us really believe that we are in, you know, the Arctic about to die in five minutes from now if we don't get saved? You know, we have to you have to try your best to recreate fake situations. So, yeah, I think everybody on set plays a role in that. Well, you mentioned before about the catering, right? And I had to ask whether that... So, that's always something I'm interested in. I'm curious about how the catering works. How does it work? Like, and what's the catering like? Is it super good? Is it like pretty paltry? And is it... Everything depends on your the budget of the film, really. You know, I because I used to be a caterer. And I did a little bit of film work, but there's two different types of catering. There's one catering, which is your meal. So, you know, in the old days before COVID, it was, you know, typically a buffet style and you could pick out what you want on these wonderful buffets. Now it's you order and it gets delivered to you prepackaged and that kind of stuff because of COVID. But there's the there's the meal. So there's lunch and supper where everyone takes a break and has it. And then there's something called the craft table. Another thing I knew nothing about when I hear craft, I think arts and crafts. And oh, somebody was like, dinner. do you want something? You think craft dinner is hilarious. I never think about craft dinner. <laughs> Even when you say craft dinner, I try not to think about craft <laughs> dinner. But, you know, somebody was like, do you want something from the craft table? I would have been like, what are these guys? Do they need me to play with a fidget spinner or something just to occupy myself while I'm not working? I would have had no idea. But the craft table, for reasons I don't know is a table where there's a bunch of food. And I used to, I did some craft on, on video sets, particularly uh, music videos. And what a thankless job. And that's a job where it's like, here, we have 250 bucks for you. You're doing craft. Now with the 250, you have to put some money aside for yourself. And then you have to go get your groceries and your time is meaningless. You're just going to be on set, non-union craft. And you have to make it look like you're a self-respecting craft person with a good array of stuff. So I would, 
inevitably make like 10 bucks, you know, because I would go and buy all these different things. I want people to have these tuna sandwiches and uh, peanut butter sandwiches. And uh, and of course, my tuna sandwich couldn't just be tuna and mayo. It had to have like celery and radishes and pickles and like Dijon. And like, so I was wasting so much money. Nobody appreciates a good craft table the way I do. I feel like whispering to these craft people, I know you're not making money today. I respect you, you know? But yeah, sometimes it's amazing. But the bigger the budget, the better it's going to be. And you can sort of tell the budget by the food. So, so those are two different things. The caterer and the craft table are yeah. two different things. Yeah. Okay. Craft table is always out there. So anytime you're hungry and the craft table becomes problematic for actors who are trying to stay in shape and, mm-hmm. and, and like naughty because inev- inevitably you're walking by a table with jujubes and jelly beans oh, and wow. granola bars and, you know, and for sure there's apples and bananas, but they always look like they suck in comparison to all these like treats that are there. So, so with the catering, was there ever any, like this is like so amazing it's better than a you know yeah well in toronto there's david mintz david mintz gets a shout out from me for sure david mintz is always great when i see that name i know good thing good things are happening happening and also blazing kitchens blazing kitchens was like if you go who's catering blazing kids you go oh my god because these guys had like for me it was already very tasty food. Plus they had like 11 hot sauces and the chef would be like, oh, I also have this hot sauce, which I make myself. I mean, you don't get that everywhere. This is like really, you know, condiment city by the end of your, you you have 11, 12 different choices in this buffet. And then you have all these different sauces and you have great desserts. Those guys did great work. So yeah, sometimes the name you're like, okay, these people build their rep on it being Phenomenal. And I, I feel for a lot of them because COVID has changed their business. I know one guy who just got out of catering completely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can, I'm yeah, sure. Like, I'm this sure. is no fun for me anymore. I got into this business for a reason. I enjoyed it. And all that stuff is, you know, prepackaging the food, yeah. dropping it off, not even being able to chat with the actors. He's like, I'll just do something else. Yeah. Wow. So a couple other questions then. You talked before about the tent that you were in in Montreal. Yeah. So what about – do? You, but what about tra- – we always hear about trailers. You got trailers. Do you ever get your own trailer and is it like nice or is it like, eh, it's okay? Again, everything goes down to budget. And those are also things your agent will advocate for, for what we'll, we'll pitch for. You know, he needs a, a two-banger or a three-banger. What now, the? Also, yeah, this exactly. Is- I don't know why trailer is called a banger. But a two-banger means you have the trailer on an 18-wheeler, and two-banger means there's two people in that. And that's pretty good. That's quite a lot of space, right? You have a Mm -hmm. couch, you'll have a television, you'll have a desk, you'll have a space to change, you'll have a bathroom of your own. Two-banger's great, three-banger's not bad. Once you get into the So you're sharing with another actor then, if it's a You're sharing the entire trailer, but it's divided. You don't see that other actor. Oh, okay, okay. You have your own room. Okay. The biggest actors will have an entire trailer to themselves. Okay, Ali Hassan is not there yet, but I, you know, two bangers <laughs> no. is is you know relatively common. Three banger, four banger, sure. One show because I was on just for one day, and they're like, we're not going to give this guy like he's barely going to be in his trailer. I was in an eight banger, which I didn't know that existed, but that's basically university dorm rooms and no bathroom in there. You have to go outside to use the bathroom, right? So it's just these dorm rooms slash prison cells. And that's fine too. You know, you have to be a little bit practical about like what what we can set this guy up with the biggest trailer. Uh, He's never going to be in his trailer, A, and B, he's only on for one day. So sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And some shows, like kids shows, 
don't have the budget and uh, your quote unquote trailer is a folding chair in the side of a gym. You know what I mean? Like, hey, there, in that corner, that's 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 your area. That's your area. Isn't that nice? Do you need anything in your area? <laughs> when you're on, when you're on a trailer though, in a trailer, do you, do they um do they like on TV do they knock on do they knock on the thing and say you got you, onset or well, I don't know what they say onset yes. in 5 minutes or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, we're they walk uh, you we're, there. We're walking to set in 10. Yeah, we're, we're 10 minutes. I'll give you a 10 minute heads up. I actually hate that knock. I hate oh. that knock, so I usually leave my door open. I'm a door open guy because that knock, inevitably you start drifting off or something and then uh, bang, bang, bang. And you're like, oh God, like it just, it's too many times that I've been shocked. And also I don't like, you know, it, the the mantra on set, I don't know if I mentioned this before, is hurry up and wait. It's a whole world of hurry up and wait. Everybody's trying to get things going. Okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. We need you right now. We need you. We need you in two minutes. We need you in the makeup show. We need you. And so you're rushing only to get to set to find out that there's a hundred reasons why things have been delayed. And you can't take any of it personally. You can't be angry at any of it. These things just happen. There's there's like a hundred moving parts, right? For them all to go smoothly is quite a challenge. So yeah, I just don't like the knock. I'd rather they go, hey, we're going to be ready. And I, I I like this free flow of movement. If you're worried about me changing into clothes while the door is open, I don't. I, I close the door. Yeah, I was a I bit change. worried about that. But those those doctors who listen to our podcast, it's like when your pager goes off. I bet you that knock on the door is like your pager going off. Yeah. It always happens at the most inopportune moments. Exactly. When you think, yeah, I could just relax now and then your pager goes off. Usually I fall asleep at nighttime if I'm on call. I come on call tonight and I probably five to 10 minutes after I fall asleep, my pager will go off. I, I think that's probably a great example. It's just something jarring and inconvenient and aggressive. Yeah, yeah exactly. So have you had any embarrassing moments on a set yeah i've had a few like that you know when i was on french immersion my first film i just you don't know any of the lingo and and then you learn the lingo so for example I mean, there's no way to know this like i never took a class in life on set now they have those but i'm willing to bet that between when you take the class to when you're actually on set could be many months, even right. years for some people. And you for, you'd forget all that anyway. So you really have to sort of learn on set. You just have to be a little inquisitive and, and, and smart in your questions and, you know, try not to do anything dumb. But I remember being in a scene on set. They were trying to get me to, to, to you know, be a little bit higher and stand on something. So uh, somebody says, do you want an apple? And somebody else goes, yeah, get him a half apple. And I was like, well, actually, I'm, I'm okay. Maybe after, <laughs> after we film. And everybody burst out laughing. An apple is an apple box. So if I don't know if you know those oh, classic right, right, wooden yeah. boxes wooden box. yeah. that apples used to be you know, delivered and transported in. You know, sometimes you have to have somebody stand on an apple box. There's also a half apple box. There's also a quarter apple box. So people go get them a quarter apple, get them a half apple. They don't say the word box anymore. So I'm there wondering why would these guys think I need a half an apple? We're in the middle of a scene, some <laughs> professionalism people. Anyway, so I think that's how it came across. Like, no, no, I don't, I'll, I'll have that later. I'd like to get the scene done. Uh, I thought maybe they thought I was dehydrated or parched and maybe he yeah, needs the God. moisture from an apple. Yeah. So but there's no way to know these things. And anyway, everybody laughed at me, but they also knew it was my first film yeah this is then afterwards people were like mr hassan just to let you know this is an apple 
Yeah. This is an Apple box. You know, like uh, they were they were having fun with it. I think there is some like joy in seeing somebody on their first film set and having these, uh, you know, because everyone goes, oh, I remember when I had dumb questions. That's beautiful. That's sweet. So, so what about interactions with famous people? You've been on some sets and had scenes with like Kiefer Sutherland, Dave Bautista, Eugene Levy, John Larroquette. Do you actually interact with these people? Do they actually talk to you? Or is it like... We're filming this scene, don't talk to me or touch me uh, at all. <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing. It really, it has to do with the person themselves and what their day has been like, I think. You know, it was John Larroquette and Kiefer Sutherland. John Larroquette was a very, very uh, generous with his time and his knowledge. And John Larroquette's like a, you know, I don't know if people remember Dan Fielding from Night Court. Mm -hmm, you know, I'd watch that guy for, I don't know how long Night Court was on. It feels like it was on for a decade. So to talk to him was already, you know, I I, I didn't want to be, um, remember that, I didn't want to, you know, that Chris Farley sketch. <laughs> yeah. Remember when you did it? That was awesome. Yeah. But part of me, you know, those inevitably, those memories of the scenes he did in Night Court come rushing back. So I just talked to him about himself and his life. And I think he, he liked that. And he was very, very generous with stories of his own experiences. So was it just you like sitting beside him, just chatting it with him? It was just uh, me and him because we were going to be in a scene together. By the way, John Larroquette, I, I also love, he was in, after Night Court was in the John Larroquette show which is kind of an underrated show the show was hilarious yeah, he was a manager fan. of a bus station recovering alcoholic in the show and anyway that was a that was a great show but yeah, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so that's great finishing. so that, that's a good experience that's then. great uh Kiefer Sutherland also I mean despite the fact that he's the lead he's executive producer and you know this is a designated designated, this is designated survivor, survivor and yeah. he there's so many moving parts that he is himself involved in he still was sitting you know playing chess I don't play chess well enough, so I didn't play, but I was just chatting with him and he was telling me great stories about when his father, because I was telling some of the American actors, I said, you know, I don't know if Kiefer has told you this, but his grandfather, maternal grandfather is the father of, you know, modern, modern medicine, Tommy Douglas, right? Mm -hmm. Who started uh, mm -hmm. from, from the prairies and... I was asking him, did you meet him? I said, oh yeah, I met him. He was, uh, you know, rough around the edges type of guy. He actually... Uh, he taught my mother the Scottish uh, Scottish handshake. And everybody was like, what's the Scottish handshake? And he says, well, she went to school one day and came back home and said, uh, somebody stole my bike. And he said, who... Who stole Who stole your bike, my pet? Who stole your bike, my pet? I don't remember how what accent, like Scottish accent. I think, who stole your bike, my pet? And it goes with that. And then so he then he demonstrated what a Scottish head handshake was, which was basically, my mother went and headbutted some kid oh, in the God. nose. And uh, I don't know if that happened. I don't know if it's a real story, but the way he told the story it was fantastic. And, and the moral of the story was like, my mother never had her bike stolen ever again, and nobody messed with her again. So, like, you just have these memories of people, which are wonderful. And then there's people like, you know, sometimes you get in your own head. I, Dave Bautista, for those people who know him, he was, he was a wrestler and action star, and he's such an imposing figure. His entire hand could just cover my entire skull. Wow. He's got a massive hand. He's very big. And um, again, I was on a movie, My Spy, with him in some scenes, and it was just... There was a lot of demands on him, and I part of me was like, I don't really want to bother this guy. And then another guy sits beside him, just enamored by him, totally like, I saw this, and I remember this, and your wrestling character. And Dave Bautista loved it. Oh, yeah. He loved it. So you just never know how to really approach mm -hmm. people. But I didn't get to talk to him a ton. 
he was just so big that I was just thinking of like comedic things to say to this guy like, oh, so uh, you like protein bars? <laughs> I like protein bars. I, you know, I was just thinking of hilarious things in my head. And then in the end, the moment passed. We just we were very polite to each other and little highs, buys and all that. But um, yeah, it was just too much of an imposing figure. It was a phenomenal you know, specimen of a man. And I was like, I don't know how to talk to this guy. I don't have the words. And did you have a lot of interaction with Eugene Levy? You just had, I think, one scene with him in. in uh... I had the one scene. It was all night. It was a full, full night. When you in the movie Goon, you know, it looks like it goes forty five seconds, and I'm out of there. But that was that took a full night to film uh, in Winnipeg, and we would go outside of this boiling hot restaurant because of the lights, and we would talk outside in the street in Winnipeg. And then inevitably at 3am in Winnipeg, a lot of panhandlers were coming up and this kind of stuff. But yeah, we had some interesting chats. We had some nice sense. Does he remember me at all? He does not, but he's, he's fun to work with. He's great. That's good. You know, these famous interactions sounds like none of these are really bad experiences though. I guess no if you had bad experiences, we probably wouldn't out these people, I would think. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I really don't. My perspective is it's it's like you're making magic, you know, to make movies mm -hmm. and make film and television. And so I'm part of this magic show and I have a role and I try to take it as seriously as possible. And I just try to be grateful that I'm there. And I think, yeah, in general, I've seen some people get impatient and yell and this and that. And even that, you're like, I get it. I get it. There's a lot going on here. And, and you're making magic. And also there are producers breathing down the neck of the director mm -hmm. and the crew to like, mm -hmm. hurry up and get this yeah, done yeah. quick. And we're over budget and all this stuff. So I think when you create your own things is when you could have bad experiences, right? Because that thing you want to create that you mm -hmm. envision mm -hmm. once yeah, no. you yeah. see it, it doesn't represent your vision. And, you know, I think that's where people have very, very stressful things. But as far as life on set, I've always enjoyed it. I've been grateful and I've, I've been lucky enough that people just keep giving me work. Okay, now, Asif, I have heard you talk a lot about unconscious bias. I have learned a little bit about what unconscious bias is. My thoughts at the beginning, and I and I say this because there might be people listening who have the same misconception. My, I, you know, I thought unconscious bias was a a polite way to say discrimination mm -hmm. and racism, quite honestly. And I, I, I was thinking specifically about cases from last year of indigenous women who were mistreated. And in one case, in the case of Joyce Echequan in Quebec, she died in hospital. Mm -hmm, right. And it was deliberate mistreatment. There was also a woman from Nunavut who was in Ottawa. You know, you were bragging about your precious Ottawa, but she was also uh, mm, mistreated. Right. Lisi Kakasik was her name, and she was, you know, airlifted from uh, Nunavut to uh, she was a wheelchair bound woman and so she had to have diapers changed and the nurses were quite blatant about the fact that like, we're sick of you peeing we have to change your diapers just pee in your diaper and we're not giving you water because you're peeing too much and so she had to make a 911 call uh her, she was worried she was going to die of thirst because they hadn't given her water in so long so when i think of unconscious bias i think of discrimination and i think of racism and i think of those cases 
but I believe these are different things. Yeah. But I wanted to mention that in case that's on people's minds. So tell me what unconscious bias is and how it differs from that. Well, I think I think that's a good way to introduce the, the topic. So what those examples you talked about, and I want to swing back to First Nations people in a bit because it, that's in Canada. That's that's I think what we should think about when we talk about marginalized and underrepresented people. But those two examples are really what I would call conscious bias. <laughs> like you were actually being racist against somebody. So. And which, of course, I mean, I don't think I have to say that that's wrong and disgusting behavior. And it does happen in healthcare, obviously. Those are two examples from healthcare. But what I want to talk about is unconscious bias, which is slightly different. It's also called implicit bias. You will see those two terms. So, and, and unconscious bias and stereotypes are very intricately linked. Okay. So, unconscious bias occurs when you have what we talked about in a previous episode, these, this bias, this automatic processing, this kind of type one fast thinking, you know, and in medicine, let's just say, you know, coming to a diagnosis about something, but it's influenced, unfortunately, by stereotypes about people based on usually them being part of a minority group. Okay. That's interesting. So the minority group aspect still plays a role. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, and that could be with respect to race, gender, how you identify sexually. So let's just back up a sec. So stereotypes are beliefs that you associate with a certain group of people. So a certain group of people have this trait or characteristic. Apparently a stereotype of South Asian people is that they don't like to go out to restaurants and eat out at restaurants. And I didn't knew that. I didn't know that when I was growing up, because as you know, Wait, my family who's, likes who's going out to restaurants. You? Yeah. Who's told you that stereotype? If you look on the internet, it's like a classic like meme uh, of like South Asian people. But you like going out to restaurants. I like going out to restaurants. My family did. So I'm like, I don't know. But apparently that's a stereotype. Or that South Asian people are cheap. That's another one. Well, I think it's the cheapness that results in them not going to restaurants, right? Those two go hand yes. in hand. Yeah, right? right? And it's the... You know, I think Eddie Murphy had that great joke about like, I'll make you a hamburger at home, his mother says, right? That whole story about oh, yeah, like, I want McDonald's, McDonald's yeah, I'll yeah. make you a burger at home. And I think at the end of the day, you you can only do what your resources permit you to do, right? When I was begging my dad, dad, let's get a cottage. Why can't we buy a cottage? And he'd be like, cottage, we'll go for a picnic. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's a real low budget response to what I was asking for here. But I think, you know, we're, we're limited by our resources, but I think in many South Asians cases, you're, you're, you and I know we're, we're more of a frugal culture, right? Yes, there are, there are communities that are more frugal. And I think, yeah, that's, so that's uh, I'm using that stereotype because it involves us and our backgrounds, yes. but you know, these are oversimplified images or ideas. I just gave you an example. My family is not particularly cheap or particularly they like going out to restaurants, like my, my parents love it. So, you know, it, it, that's oversimplified. But the problem is now we use this in, in medicine, right? And in medicine, we have a lot of these what we call pearls. Pearls means like diagnostic, clinical pearls. Remember- Pearls of wisdom? This, pearls of wisdom. So remember in this case, think about this. So if it's a white child that comes in with recurrent respiratory infections, we think white people have a higher predisposition to cystic fibrosis. Maybe we got to check for cystic fibrosis. Oh. Okay. Which, I thought you were going to say asthma. My God, cystic CF. Yeah. You went right to CF. With recurrent. But a First Nations child who comes in with a respiratory infection, sadly, in, in Canada, we have to think about TB, tuberculosis, because mm. it's endemic in many reservations. It's endemic in the north. Uh, so mm. we have to think about that. Whereas if you're from the suburbs of Toronto, you may not think about that. 
And these stereotypes are based on true prevalence rates. So in other words, cystic fibrosis is more common in Caucasian people, and TB is more common in First Nations people. But then what happens is you start to make a mistake, which is like you assume the push, the individual in front of you is this prevalence rate or whatever is applied to them. And that will cause you to make errors. When you say, oh, this person is First Nations, maybe they have TB, but maybe you're not realizing that, okay, actually they have um, some other uh, disease going on. And so it, this causes a lot of these errors we talked about in a previous episode. It causes premature closure, missing diagnosis, because you need to still think about the person in front of you and not just their perceived demographic characteristics. So this is obviously something that affects patient care. Does it only sort of, how do I say that? Is it like a whack-a-mole thing? Like you hear the stories here and there, they pop up and that's how you know it's happening? Or is it, uh, is it a, a, a huge issue that the medical community is very aware of right now? Well, th th there's a very good question. So it's, are they aware of it? No, except for oh, the handful of research. Well, yeah, that's right. So, and I'll get back to why that's the case in a second, why we're not as aware of it as a whole. But there are lots of researchers doing research on this on this topic, and obviously it's bad. You don't want to stereotype people, obviously, but does it affect their health, right? I think is what you were kind of getting at. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, yeah. And it does. Sure. Yeah, it does. So for, I'll give you just a bunch of examples. So white male physicians are less likely to prescribe pain medications to African-American patients than to white patients. Doctors assume that they're in the US, their African American or low income patients are less intelligent, more likely to engage in risky behaviors, and less likely to adhere to medical advice. Pregnant women face discrimination often based on their ethnicity and socioeconomic background. And actually, my, my wife, Megan, has done some research on teen mothers and their perceptions of how they're treated by the healthcare system. And, you know, spoiler. They're not treated well. And women presenting with cardiac disease, so even women, even just men and women, women presenting with cardiac disease, symptoms are less likely than men to receive the correct diagnosis and treatment and are more likely to have it just sloughed off as, oh, that's just anxiety. You're, you're just anxious, a panic attack. Age is another one, right? Because we're talking about, so these different minority groups, you can slice and dice it different ways, right? We was talking about men and women. What about age? Physicians are less likely to treat suicidal ideation in elderly patients, despite that patients age 85 and higher have the second highest rate of suicide of any age group, which is surprising to me, is probably surprising to you. Mm -hmm. But that's the problem. It's surprising to you because you think suicide yeah. is a younger, younger person's problem, but it's not. 85 plus, it's very common. Uh, women are, are three times less likely to be referred for knee replacement than men, even when it's indicated. So these are these are all examples of unconscious bias that occurs in, in healthcare and that has been proven to affect health outcomes. Is this something that happens throughout medical careers? It gets worse, or do you see this? Do you see effects of uh, unconscious bias even in in residents and in in students? Well, we do, and I'll give you an example. It actually occurs even to residents when they're like applying for like a residency program, right? And it occurs to them. So I'll give you an example. So basically there's a study that looked at letters of reference to a urology. Urology has to do with the kidneys, bladder, et cetera, right? And the, the study compared letters of reference, right? So these are medical students who want to be urologists, right? So they applied a bunch of programs and predominantly the letters and the evaluators are, are white males, 
Uh, urology tends to be a male dominant profession. The the study the study authors compared a male applicant and female applicant letters. So this is reference letters written by urologists for this person to get them into a residency program somewhere across America, right? Okay. And the letters for male applicants had significantly higher word counts. So in other words, they're treating the men and women who are applying differently when they're writing their letters. Adjectives like exceptional uh, were used more in the, the male applicants. They talk about their leadership and their ability. They use the applicant's name more often in the letter when they're male. Female applicants have, uh, they call them delightful and hardworking, you know? Mm. So qualitatively different descriptions. They use softer words for, for women. But then there are obviously some female urologists, right? When a female urologist wrote the letters and we compared letters across ones that were written by female letter writers, there was no difference. So female letter writers, female urologists writing these letters of reference treat everybody the same, uh, whereas the male ones have this, uh, this bias, this unconscious. This bias. Okay, that's something happening to residents and medical students. What about among residents and med students, do they exhibit unconscious bias? Do you know anything about that? So that's that's a good question. And it I'll say it like this. It applies to everybody. It it applies to every single single person. And it's the type of thing if you think it doesn't apply to you, you're wrong because it unconscious bias occurs in everybody. So it's not people would be very, I think, when they hear about this, it'd be like, yeah, that's really bad that those other people have this mm-hmm. unconscious bias and are and are stereotyping sure. people. But no, it's you. It's everybody who's in medicine who's listening to this. And it's actually everybody in the world because everybody does this. You yeah. know? And and the example I give is, you know this, Ali. So in Muslim countries, there is a tendency to intermarry uh, between blood relatives, right? Uh, we call that consanguinity mm-hmm. uh, when they do that. So, we call that my parents' awkward. <laughs> so I, I, I asked my medical students, I said, do you ask about consanguinity with every patient that you see when you're kind of going through their family history and genetic history? Or do you only ask the Muslim, Middle Eastern, South Asian people? And, 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 you know, I bet you they also ask South Asian people who aren't Muslim. I bet you they also ask Hindus and Christians who have lower rates of consanguinity, mm-hmm. much lower than Muslim people, probably because they can't tell the difference between someone who's a Muslim from South Asia and, and, and That's others. a whole other, yeah. Yeah. So other I, I said, do you do that? And if you, if you don't ask every single person, you know, and because we have had some patients who are Caucasian, Caucasian Canadians who actually the parents were first cousins. And they're like, yeah, it's actually, we've been shunned by our families. We've been ostracized by our families because of this. And they didn't even admit it the first time. It's only, you know, with further questioning because because it's it's so shunned in, in North American culture. Mm-hmm. So this is why you have to ask this. I'm like, this is the mistake you'll make by not asking everybody the thing. So th- I use that example with, with, with medical students. So I'll ask you a couple questions. Let me ask you some questions here, Ali. Oh boy. Do you think that the level of one's education can modify the magnitude of someone's unconscious or implicit bias. In other words, I'm more educated, I have a PhD versus I'm um, you know, high school educated. Do you think that no, can modify it? Yeah, not per- necessarily. Correct. No. Evidence says that that does not uh, modify that. So don't think that just because you're more educated, you don't do this, because you do. Secondly, does the frequency of interaction with a specific individual 
okay, from a uh, from an underrepresented group, does that modify your overall stereotype associations for that person? I'm certain it does. Yeah, it, and it does too. So, so th- those are good examples of things that you can do. Spend more time with patients, get to know them individually. Don't stereotype people as part of one group, but yet don't fool yourself thinking your education will prevent you from having this. Mm-hmm. So, how do you? Uh, how's this being addressed? You said there are studies being done. Yeah. Uh, th- that's pretty common that people are studying unconscious bias, but I see a big challenge right. uh, in, in regards to telling people that they are, I don't want to say suffering from it, but uh, you know, uh, what's the right word? You are using, you know, de- deploying unconscious bias in their everyday life. If people are resistant to accepting that, how do you address this? Yeah. So uh, there's a good quote by uh, this person, Howard Ross, who says, you can't eliminate bias, but you can learn how to dance with it to minimize its effect. So I think really the overall strategy is to improve awareness and to realize that you as a person, regardless of the intent behind your actions, may be demonstrating a bias. So we hear this all the time. I I didn't mean to offend. I didn't mean to offend somebody. That's fine that you didn't, but you still may have, right? And so, and I think so it's just, it's, it's overall making people more aware. Now, this is a bit complicated because when they actually have formal diversity training in medical schools where they teach people about diversity and you got to be respectful of of uh, of gender, sexual identity, uh, minority groups, that doesn't do any harm, but it doesn't really do any good. Because I think what happens when you people hear like a lecture on diversity, they think, yeah, 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 I'm not like that. But I know other people who are, like I said before. So, so I think, and the idea is you have to change the way you view this, right? First of all, everybody has this. You, you can't get rid of it, but you just want to make it less important in your daily interactions. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the goal, right? You can't get rid of it, but you can try and, and, and minimize it. And obviously, you know, you want to, this helps by looking at the patient as an individual, as we talked about, and getting patients more engaged in their treatment through various means, you know, getting them more involved as being on the team. I think those things were help. But we can also look at at different levels, you know, uh, Ali. So, you know, when you look at organizations like medical schools or universities, they have to increase the mass of underrepresented individuals, you know, for sure. And and in medicine, it's different, right? It's a little spoiler, unfortunately, Ali. South Asians are not underrepresented in medical school. Okay, neither are Asians. Sorry, they're not. We're talking about, especially in the U.S., African Americans, Hispanics, and in Canada, definitely First Nations people. Right? That then when in Canada you have to, even though a lot of the studies are in the U.S. and they look at African Americans and Hispanics, when you live in Canada, obviously we also want African Americans and Hispanics more represented. But when you think about the way we've treated First Nation people, as you talked about at the beginning of this segment. You know, that that's all obviously important. You want to have lots of people on these committees, you know, of various uh, underrepresented groups when you're, say, deciding on people who uh, who to admit into medical school, right? You want just more than white males on these committees. They say, you know, for an individual person, you should have like, especially before making any high stakes decisions, whether it's seeing a patient, uh, deciding who to let into your residency program or medical school, you should reflect and think, you know, what are my biases here? You know what I mean? And think about whether- Hold up a mirror to yourself. Those are very like frank- uh, you know, self, uh, you know, introspective uh, discussions that not everybody's you know, 
comfortable yeah. having. And, and 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 if you do, you know, you, so you have to address these biases before they occur. So be aware of them. Maybe be more cis systematic in your thinking. We talked before in a previous episode about the type two thinking, analytical. Don't just jump to conclusions based on who you're seeing and be open to new experiences. But, you know, if you have done something, and we've talked in the past about microaggressions and things like that, if you've done something that you feel has offended somebody, you have to think a couple of things. First of all, remember that int your intent is slightly irrelevant, right? Because you can still offend somebody whether you did not intend to, right? So that's fine that you do not intend to, but the impact on the person is still there. So you have to acknowledge that and 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 you have to own the consequences of your action. So apologizing, you know, try and rebuild trust, whether it's with a patient or whether it's with a colleague or a medical student or or anything like that. There's also this idea that they're trying to promote in medical schools and and in individual basis. They talk about cultural sensitivity. We've already heard about that, but there's a new concept called cultural humility, which basically is like you us people in North America don't know everything and and Europe will say western, you know, countries in quotation marks don't know everything, you know, and you need to be maybe have some humility about that. So a perfect example, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before, at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Asia and especially China had all this information about COVID-19 and then when in in March and April of 2020 people were like we 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 have no data. This is all the the western country. We have no data. We have no experience. We have no idea what to do. Actually, you have about four or five months of data from these countries. So maybe you should consider their expertise in this before you start saying, well, we have no way to know. And then you look at a country like South Korea, who did a good job with isolation, testing, and tracing. Well, let's just ignore what they did and um, just figure out our own way, right? And another example of things that say a medical school could do is to have these counter stereotypical interactions, right? I can't remember, for example, ever having a lecture from a First Nations person or, or like our grand rounds or big speaker at a, at a presentation, uh, except to maybe talk about Indigenous or First Nations issues. But just to talk about, say, pediatric neurology, you know, I, I've never heard that before. So you need to have these representatives from, from these underrepresented groups presenting. And then another thing that people can do is support mentorship, right? Like a lot of underrepresented minorities, whether it's women, um, other minority groups, say they don't have mentorship, right? And they feel kind of isolated. So that's another important thing that, that people can do. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this, just to wrap up, you know, because I, I, I started with talking about these cases of uh, both Joyce Edchaquan and uh, Lisi Kakasik. Now, Joyce filmed the nurses discriminating against her and being overtly racist. And that's why we know about that case. Mm -hmm. Lisi called 911 mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because she thought she was going to die of thirst. If you feel like you're being discriminated against, what are your uh, what, what course of action do you have? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, there's the formal channels, you know, especially if it's a conscious, obvious racism, people making or you know racist comments to you or treating you differently. There's a formal channels of appeal to you know if you're in a medical school, there's a professionalism committees and things like that that you can bring things up. But I think one way to think about this is because I think those are pretty obvious, you know, examples of someone's being blatantly racist to you or things like that. Where it becomes a bit more tricky is what about these microaggressions, right? And we've talked about this again on the show. Oh, uh, uh, Ali, uh, where are you from? And you're like, well, I was born in New Brunswick. And you, but where you, we, no, I mean, where you're really from, you know? Okay. Okay. You mean my parents are from Pakistan, right? 
I know we've talked about this. You and I don't get particularly offended by that, but it can be offensive to people. And there's there's levels of microaggression. And so if someone has done this to you, I think it's fair to call them out, but there are some interesting ways to kind of do this. You know, you want to think about it. Okay, I'm going, if you want to do something. So for example, if someone meets uh, you or I, Ali, they're like, oh, you know, uh, I'm surprised your English is really good. And then, and then you're like, uh, so then you can use a joke, right? You could be like, English is my first language. What's yours? You know, another one that people do if they make like a stereotypical or, or racist joke, right? And you don't really, you know, you're not really that into it. My, my, this is one of my wife's things that she says uh, that you could say is like, I don't get it. Could you explain the joke? Mm. Oh, and oh, in their explanation, they realize how stupid it yeah. all. Yeah. Oh well, you yeah. know, sometimes uh, South Asian people they cook, and then their house smells like curry, and then um, um. still don't get it. <laughs> just keep saying that. Keep saying it. Could you clarify some more? Uh, you know, and it just it it makes the, the their racistness just so, and, and they realize what they did, or clarify. You know, what did you mean when you said this? And sometimes you just have to be direct with them, you know, like, I know you may not have intended to do this, but personally, that that offends me. And I think that may be a generational thing to go to that, you know, being direct and acknowledging your discomfort with it. I, I don't know how much, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing between you and I, like, I don't know how much I would do that. I think the younger generation millennials do that more, you know, they, they are they are quick to to mention that. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's an individual choice, you know? Um, I think the key is if you do that, which is fine, you don't want to end the conversation there, right? So <laughs> like you've done a microaggression towards me. I felt whatever by it, you know, upset, hurt or whatever. And then there's silence afterwards. Like that's not a good way to end it. You need to continue the conversation beyond the interaction because just like you don't want someone to base their opinion on you on one interaction, you should not do that with somebody else too. So you should can still continue the conversation and maybe move on to other topics. And I think that last thing is what people don't do at all, right? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people have this, this feeling that, you know, it's not my responsibility to teach this person. Yeah. I look, it's not, but it, it could do some you know, it could yeah. do some help. I yeah. don't know. These are this is it's different outlooks on this. I'm I'm always that guy who's like, I have an opportunity here to uh, to educate somebody, but not everybody has that inclination and that time. And maybe they feel like I've done my whole life. Like now, you do the work. Why am I doing the work? Why am I continuing to do the work? I I, I see that side of it also. I have to say. And I think you know, it's 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 all about. I do. You... I think these opportunities are important, you know, do, do you want to complain about the problem or do you want to actively do something about it? And there's ways of doing something about it, which isn't necessarily attacking the person who's been insensitive towards you. You know what I mean? There, there are ways to point out and then move on and, and look for more positive interactions. So, yeah. All right. Thanks for enlightening us with that, Asif. And I, of course, as your friend, will be keeping a keen eye on you and looking for any unconscious bias that comes from you. As you know, I, I don't suffer from that at all. Yeah, please call out my microaggressions <laughs> towards you. <laughs> so.
So in the last few minutes, just remember to follow us, social media, Dr. V Comedian, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we're on everything. And there, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but make sure, especially on Apple Podcasts, if you're, if you're looking at our podcast, just go up to the top right-hand corner, click the three dots, and you want to follow and turn on automatic downloads. That makes sure that you will never miss an episode. Ali, anything to discuss before we- Well, we also love hearing from you. Every time we get some feedback, whether it's uh, ideas for shows or feedback on stuff we've talked about or your own personal experiences when you share those, it's it's always a joy, you know, because it's really Asif and I uh, staring inside each other's nostrils here on these uh, on these cameras and sometimes to feel like, hey, you guys are out there, you're engaged, you're enjoying the shows. We we always love that. So happy to hear from you uh, anytime on any of the channels that you can find us on. And please remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Good day to you, sir. And man. And oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy.